So the last service, I had a hard time getting the clicker to work. This service, I'm having a hard time getting the clicker to work. It's two times in a row. And it's me. It's always me. It's just how it works. So uh, those of you who weren't here uh, didn't know what's going on. This last yesterday, this last yesterday, which would be Saturday, uh, we celebrated a wedding. And John is, he was here first service. He, he got to be a spectator uh, for what I did. And so uh, uh, we, <laughs> I, so I had a video of John that I'm not going to show, but it's really good. There's things about John you might not know he can do. Um, I didn't know that he could do, but he's pretty light on his feet. So uh, he got, he didn't get married. Uh, Alicia got married yesterday. So John had the opportunity to officiate the wedding and uh, it was a great, great, great service. So uh, we are continuing along in a series that was on the book of Judges. Uh, so uh, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Roddy Hanna, and uh, I don't like to be told what to do. So this problem, you see, has been a part of my life for quite some time. I'm going to pull this stool up because I will sit down and collapse. It's been a part of my life for quite some time. And uh, I, re I started realizing that uh, at about the age of 13, that I was pretty much smarter than anybody else around me. And uh, that problem still lists with me today a little bit, if I let it, but I was definitely smarter than my, my parents. I was surely smarter than my sister, who was older than me, but it's just kind of the way I live my life. In 1993, I know the year, because it was my senior year of high school, and I was very smart by this point. It was my senior year of high school, and I... Uh, was dating a young lady that lived in Frederick, Maryland. You don't know this about me, but I grew up in uh, Fairfield, Pennsylvania, which is about 40, 45 minutes uh, drive down Route 15. And she had two younger brothers. And of course they looked up to me. I mean, how could they not? I was like, awesome. So they looked up to me, and I realized the secret to success in a relationship with her was for her brothers to like me. And I did a lot of things with them, not because I wanted to, but because I thought I probably should, because I found that it helped my relationship. We enjoyed golfing. This is just something we did. We did golfing often. The one brother actually worked at a golf course, and uh, so we would spend a lot of our time out on the links. Not that I was a good golfer, but it's just something we did. And we had made up our mind that we were going to go golfing uh, at a place called Mountain View Golf Course, which is out in Fairfield, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And uh, so I drove down to pick her brothers up, and as we got ready to leave, her parents looked at us and said, listen, it's too far. We don't want you guys going to Mountain View. You guys need to go to Cluster Spires, which is in Frederick. We said, oh, really? Come on, we had this plan. Nope, Cluster Spires. Okay, okay, we'll go to Cluster Spires. We get it. Not a problem. We'll go to Cluster Spires. We hop in the car. I'm driving because they don't drive. And uh, so in the car with me, and wouldn't you know that the youngest brother in the group, the youngest one, uh, I don't know how old he was at the time, he may have been 14, 13, he says from the back seat, man, I'd love to play Mountain View. And the, her other brother goes, me too. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what, I got the power. You guys want to go to Mountain View? Yeah, let's go to Mountain View. So we head up Route 15, we stop at Mountain View, and we play our golf. And, you know, driving there, I had decided, you know, there's a couple things that we got to work out, and we worked this out in the conversation in the car. Okay, guys, we can't tell anybody that we went golfing at Mountain View. Yeah, we know that. So we show up on the course. I realized that due to time constraints, we had to 
only play nine holes. We couldn't play 18. We show up on the course. We play, we're at hole number eight. And I remember it to this day. I remember turning around and looking, and there's the golf ranger watching us. And I'm like, "Eh, it's not necessarily uncommon because we were three teenage boys on a golf cart, golf carts on a golf course. And uh, so he was keeping an eye on us, and I didn't think much about it. Played through hole number eight. We get to hole number nine. We drive to hole number nine, and what, he follows us. I'm kind of like, what's the deal? He follows us to hole number nine. We play number nine. We finish up, and I'm getting ready to hop in the car, and he drives up next to me. And he goes, so uh, how many more holes are you guys playing? I said, uh, we're done. I said, we're going we're gonna to leave now. He goes, oh, okay, just curious. And he drives off. In all my years ever playing golf, I have never had a golf ranger come up to me and say, hey, are you going to play the back nine, or what are you guys doing? I, it was a little peculiar to me. We drive home, driving home, recognizing and knowing that we have to stick to our story and that we can't change our story because if we do, we're caught. We walk in the door. Um, I have a sweat problem. I perspire profusely in heat, so I had to go take a shower. Plus, rule number one of dating, guys, you have to smell good or they just don't like that. So I made sure that I smelled good and brushed my teeth. So while I was upstairs taking a shower, the brothers are downstairs. I came out of the shower and uh, get dressed. I'm at the top of the steps, getting ready to head down the steps, and I hear, overhear this conversation. It was from the girl I was dating. She was talking to her brother. So uh, how was golf? It was great. Where'd you guys go? Cluster Spires. We did not go to Cluster Spires. We went to Mountain View. Good, he, he kept that. Hmm, you did. Yep, that's where we went. Did you realize you were supposed to work today? said that to her brother. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize. I missed that on the schedule. Here's the problem. He worked at Cluster Spires. So this is before the advent of cell phones. And uh, so when your children were lost, you couldn't do find my phone and you couldn't text them and wait 20 minutes for them to text you back. You, you had to, like, you panicked. So her parents are panicking because they call the golf course. Uh, as they call, and they said, listen, they're on the course playing. Just grab them and tell them to work. They go through the whole course. They can't find them. We are, we, they're not here. So immediately their minds are to panic mode. What is going on? Where are they? Oh, you know, they mentioned that they would go to Mountain View. You know, we know Roddy would never, ever, 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 ever take them to Mountain View after we told him not to do that. He would never do such a thing because he's such a good young man. That's why the golf ranger was following us around the course. They called Mountain View. Do you happen to have three boys on the course? One will look very responsible. He'll probably act that way too, but it's not true. Um, Could you let us know if he's there? They call back ahead. They let him know that we're at the golf course. And so we get home. We're set up. So next question that's asked to, to Bert, next question that's asked to him, where'd you go? Cluster Spires. No, you didn't. Yes, we did. No, you did. You were supposed to work. We called Cluster Spires. They called us, and you weren't there because they looked for you. Where were you? He goes, Cluster Spires. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, he's holding to it, man. If you're going to die for a lie, you might as well die. Cause... <laughs> so he's not going to confess anything. So he steps forward. I come down the steps. I'm like, I can't stay upstairs all day because I can't climb out the window. I'm not that nimble. So we, I come down the steps. As soon as I get to the bottom of the steps... There she is, standing there, and she looks at me. She goes, where'd you go golfing? And I'm like, hmm, uh, Mountain View. At that point, things changed. 
At that point, what I did is I determined for my own life what was best. I didn't listen to what other people thought that I should do. I took authority that wasn't mine. And I took young guys that should have been looking up to me and I showed them how to not respect authority, how to not live your life. And I even persuaded them to lie. What leads to this in my life? What takes me to this place in my life? And here's the reality. Here's the reality about all of this. And I don't know why I live this way and think this way, but I'm going to do whatever I want, when I want, with whomever I want. And we have this little asterisk after it, right? And we say that. I'm going to do whatever I want, uh, whenever I want, with whomever I want, as long as it... What's the saying? How do we finish it? As long as it doesn't hurt somebody. And we live our lives this way. We live our lives with this idea that we are autonomous. And what does autonomous mean? Well, autonomous means that what I do only impacts me. That I live my life in a way that the way that I behave and the way that I act impacts me. It doesn't impact anybody else. It's me. That's it. But here's the reality. This is the dark underbelly of the American dream. The dark underbelly of the American dream is we have the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want, and nobody can tell us otherwise. Nobody can tell us what to do. Nobody can tell us how to act. And, and maybe it's just me that, that isn't just me that thinks this way. I think that if you were to sit down and think about this, you probably think this way too. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe you're, in your, you're, a teen, you're a teenager and you're sitting in here and you're thinking to yourself, my parents can't tell me what to do. You know, they, they can't tell me what time I have to be home. I know what's best for me. You know, maybe, maybe you're in a marriage relationship and you've been together for 10 years and you're sitting there thinking, you know, the spark's just not there anymore. I'm kind of going to look around a little bit. I'm still going to be faithful to her, but she doesn't have to know that I'm going to be exploring over here. Maybe you're, maybe you're just struggling with your own sexuality. Maybe you're struggling with the, your identity and you think, you know, no one can tell me that I am a guy or I am a girl, even though I am biologically wired that way, I get to decide. When we live in a world where morality is relative, these are the decisions that we make. And the little decisions that I made when I was this tall still about going golfing, those little decisions about how I was going to live my own life, they had great impact on my life in the future. You know, this thinking is pervasive. And come to find out, it's not new. Uh, and, and as we step into the book of Judges, we're going to continue talking through this. And I'd like to prove the point to you today that, you know, this idea of I doing, I, I'll do whatever I want whenever I want, it isn't as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. I'm going to tell you this. It always hurts somebody. Someone always gets hurt. It's just the way that it works. And so here's my disclaimer for today. Uh, I recognize that 56ers are in here. Uh, I recognize that the passage that we're going to be talking about today is explicit. You know, this scripture passage is rated R. There's no doubt about it. This is the darkest passage of scripture in the entire Bible. 
And you know, the thing that I love about it is John decides that, hey, you can preach it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm the one that's been here the least amount of time, so I don't know better. Uh, so, but I want to I assure you of this. My son is in the room today, and he's, he's younger. I am not going to handle this with uh, carelessness or uh, shock value. We are going to step through a passage of Scripture that is incredibly dark. And uh, I don't, I'll be honest with you, I, some of you grew up in homes where your parents read you Bible stories. I can guarantee you that they never read this one to you. I mean, because... It would be like, hey, Dad, can we hear the one about the Levite and the concubine? No, we're going to save that one. That's Halloween. That's when we talk about that one. And as we get into this, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. So Judges 19, page 206 in your Bible. We're going to jump into that. But I want to give a little bit of background before we step into the story. So in, in Judges falls after, you know, we have Joshua, you know, 1380 B.C. Dates, I know you're thinking, well, what do dates matter? But there was this 330-year period after Joshua, they came into the land, and they were supposed to run everybody out of the land. This is your chosen land of Israel, this little strip of land. This is yours, the promised land. They, they come through the wilderness. You know, they have, you know, they have uh, Moses led them, that Joshua comes into play. They step into the book of Judges. There's no leadership over the people. There's no king. There's no great leader like Moses or Joshua. So there are these guys called Judges. Now, when I say judges, don't think like Judge Wapner or Judge Judy, but really what they did is they were to make, they would make sure that the law was being imposed on the people rightly. They would make sure that they would help the people impose the law. They didn't lead. They were there for a season. They would help bring the people back to God. Interesting enough, at the end of Judges, we run across the book of Ruth, and then we step into Samuel. And at that point, we start seeing where... Israel moves from having God as their king, the law as what leads them, to having a real bodily king, Saul and David. There's some really cool, geeky Bible stuff that we might step into today as we work through this, if we have time. So we'll just see where we end up. But there's a pattern. And here's the pattern that we continually run into in the book of Judges. This is the common pattern for Israel. Come to think of it, the nation of Israel had something in common with me. This is a common pattern for my life. Disobedience leads to disaster, leads to deliverance, and then I duplicate the pattern. You know, it, it just seems to be something that I do. And this is what happens. I say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. Does that sound a little bit familiar to you? Have you reached a point in your life where you find yourself, I'm never going to do that again? And then I do it. <laughs> I'm never going to do that again, and I do it. Here's the deal. Maybe you really don't know what you believe about God. Maybe you're in here, and you've been struggling with your relationship with God. Maybe you think you have it all together. But here's the point. At some point in your life, you have disobeyed something. You have disobeyed an authority that has been placed in your life, whether it's the religion that you grew up with, whether it was your parents, whether it was your own conscience. You've done things that you know have been absolutely wrong, but you've still done them. And then after we get through this point, we reach the point of disobeying, we have disaster, we need deliverance, 
And for me, somebody would always come along and give me a second chance. They'd always come along and they'd give me a hand. Maybe you had somebody come along and they would pay a fine for you. Maybe you had somebody that would come along and they bailed you out of jail. I don't know. But then what you find out is, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. And you don't for about a week. And then you fall right back into the pattern. So we're going to step into a very long passage of Scripture. Now, uh, there's a lot to cover. And so we're going to skip a rock on this passage. And we're going to skip over a lot of things. But I'm going to try to hit the stuff that's really important for you to recognize and understand. We're going to step right into verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. This should sound familiar to you if you were here last week. Because last week when John was speaking, he started out a passage that said the same thing. In those days, Israel had no king. They had no king because they were supposed to view God as their king. See, they operated under what we would call a theocracy, which means that God is the supreme leader and he rules over his people. But these guys couldn't see God. Maybe the, maybe the laws were too far away or whatever. So they start doing what they want to do and God gets put on the shelf. So we see this happen again uh, as, as we look through the passage and we run into this. So these chapters that we're working through in the end of Judges are really an epilogue. And so they come at, they don't come after the story, but they are basically stories that take place during the rest of the book of Judges, when we see the people being delivered. You see the story of Samson. You see the, the, you know, the story of Ehud. You see these judges ruling. These stories are to really show what life was like for the everyday Israelite. And Everyone did what they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The statement is setting us up for something big. I'm just going to tell you, every time we hear this, you should sit back and say, oh no, what's coming? What's coming? So in other words, as opposed to saying, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what they saw fit, I'm going to word it this way. I'll do whatever I want, when I want, with whomever I want. And just mind your own business, all right? Just mind your own business. You don't have any right to tell me what's going on. I know what's best for me. And for 330 years, this kind of thinking took place in the land of Judges. The pattern of life devolved. It went down, down, down. It got dark, dark, dark. And it's going to lead us to where we're going to start talking today. This whole story, I'm just going to give you a warning. This whole story is set in a cesspool of depravity. It doesn't get much worse than this. Matter of fact, I don't think it can. Uh, this is the worst story that I think I have ever heard, and it's definitely the worst story that I've ever gotten to tell in front of a group of people. So we're going to boil this down to one big thought for you to keep in mind as we work through this passage. When I do what I want, someone always gets hurt. So think about this in your life. The bottom line, if you're a king of your own life, you are going to hurt someone. And let's see how this idea plays out in the passage. So as we step into the passage, there's characters in this story, and they are not named. None of the characters have names. 
And uh, this is on pur- purpose. And I really think the anonymity of this suggests that these men and women stand for all their types. So what does that mean? So we're going to see about a Levite in this story. And this basically says this is how all the Levites lived. We're going to see a father in this story. This is how all the fathers thought. We're going to see a concubine in this story. This is how the women were treated. We're going to see the men in this story. This is how the men acted. The purpose of this is so you can place yourself right into this story. If we do what we want to do, this is how we're going to end up. All right? It's a dark picture. And what's about to come is going to, what's about to happen is going to become even darker. So here we go. We jump into this. Now a Levite took a concubine. Immediately, immediately there's a problem with this statement. Levites were set apart to do the work of God. That's what they were there for. Out of the 12 tribes, there's 12 tribes in Israel. There's one tribe in particular, the Levites. They did all the, they, they worked in the tabernacle. They helped the people with the sacrifices. They helped make sure the people were walking with God. We have a major problem going on with this first statement. Now a Levite, the holy man, takes a concubine, a girlfriend. Let's put it into practical terms for you. My wife is sitting in the back. I'd like to introduce you to my girlfriend. There's a problem with that. And that's what's taking place in this situation. If your pastor has a girlfriend and a wife, I would say, and you're okay with it as a church, we probably have some pretty big problems. All right? So let me put some things in perspective for you. Concubine is not a word we use every day. So in Lancaster County, the closest thing I could think of it was combine, and they have nothing in common. So a combine is a farming implement, and a concubine was a wife implement. And it's the best way to put it. She was an implement. That's all she was. Concubines were second-class wives. They had very minimal rights, and there's nothing they could really do. Now, keep in mind, a woman didn't become a concubine because she took a career assessment, and it said, hey, you know what? You'd be a great concubine. It just doesn't work that way. You have to put yourself into what was taking place in the culture at that time. These women were concubines out of the need for survival. If she was not a concubine, life was dark. Chances are it was going to be death. That's just where it went. So she did what she had to do in order to survive. I can't even grasp this or put my mind around this, what would lead a young girl to live her life this way. But this is what was taking place in this situation. God makes it clear in Genesis that his plan for marriage is one woman and one man, not one woman and one man and his girlfriend. And this, con- this Levite is so outside of that, and he knows that because Levites knew the law. He knows he's in a place he shouldn't be. So here's the problem. We get real, really quick, we get thrust into this problem within their relationship. She's unfaithful to him. She's unfaithful to him, so she left him, and she went back to her father's house. Now, I... The next verse kind of blows my mind. (laughs) After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her. So she leaves her Levite dude and goes back to her home, and the the Levite gets to the point. He's like, you know what? She was my possession. She was my woman. I kind of missed the physical aspect of this relationship. I'm going to go speak to her kindly and win her back. 
So he shows up at her house after four months to persuade her. The Hebrew here is really interesting. It means to speak to her heart. He's going to show up, and this sounds really romantic. I want to speak to her heart. I want her to know how much I love her. So he hops on his two donkey, he hops on a donkey, takes his servant with him, and he takes off towards Bethlehem, because that's where she's from. So he shows up, and she's like, oh, it's you. And she takes her home, and the concubine-in-law sees, sees him, right? The father-in-law sees him and welcomes him into his house. This should stick out to us. Okay, this is the guy that is using my daughter for favors, and really nothing more. She doesn't possess a lot of rights, and he shows up at my house. Welcome, come on in. We're glad you're here, glad to see you. This immediately should be screaming, something's not right. As we read this, something's not right. And so he prevails on the Levite to stay. In other words, he grabs him, he's holding on to his arm, and he says, you need to stick around here, okay? Stick around. I'm not sure why he did that. I don't know if it was because the, what the Levite did the Levite wants, the, the father wants to save his face to his friends. My daughter's an adulterer. Well, at least if this guy comes back and takes her back, you know, adultery is punishable by death. At least she might not be killed. Maybe he's just thinking about his own honor. I don't know what's going on in his mind. So he brings him in and they have a party. I mean, just a party. They party for days. They party for three days. On the fourth day, the fourth day comes around and the Levite says, okay. Thanks for everything. Enough is enough. It's time for me to leave. I got to leave. I got to take my two donkeys, my servant, my concubine, and we got to get out of here. And the father-in-law says, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Refresh yourself. Come on, stay one more day. It's kind of late. You know, have some more to drink. Have some more wine. It's so good. I've got a good cook. Stick around. <sighs> okay. He stays another day. So the two of them sat down and they ate and drank together and afterwards the woman's father said, please stay the night, and he does. And when he got up to go, the father-in-law persuaded him again to stay and he stayed the night. You know, we're starting to see a pattern here. And finally, the morning came of the fifth day. He's been there five days. Five days he's living with the concubine-in-law and his concubine and he just, it's time to leave. On the fifth day, when the woman's father said, refresh yourself, Stay till afternoon. So the two of them ate together again. We see this pattern happening once again. Then the man with his concubine and his servants got up to leave, and he said, okay, enough is enough. We got to get out of here. And the day is almost over. So it's getting late in the day. So now I do not know what the land speed of a concubine-laden donkey is, or I, I just don't know how fast they travel. But they're not going a great distance, but they're starting so late in the day that they don't have time to make their complete journey. They just don't have time to make it. So he's not willing to stay another night. He just says, hey, we got to get out of here. we got to leave. So here's what's going on. we got two donkeys, a concubine, a servant, a Levite. Any questions? It's confusing. Read your Bible. This stuff is crazy. So we step into this. They leave. They're on their way, and they're approaching a place called Jabus, which is also known as Jerusalem. Now, what's crazy about this is Jerusalem, we would think who runs Jerusalem, right? We think, well, that's Israeli city. 
Not at this time, because what had taken place back in Judges 1, we see where the tribe of Benjamin, one of the other 12 tribes that was supposed to run the people out, destroy the people of Jebus, didn't do that. He didn't, they didn't run the people out. They didn't do what God had commanded them to do. And that city was still under control of the Canaanites, the Jebusites. So uh, they, the master says, no. We're not going to stay in a foreign city. Are you out of your mind? We are Israelites. We stay with Israelites. We don't stay with those people. So come on, let's stay the night at a different place. Let's travel up the road. We're going to go to Gibeah in Benjamin. Let's stay there. It'll be much safer than staying within the walls of Jabez. And they reluctantly continue on their way. So there's something that needs to be spoken to at this point. They show up in Gibeah. There they stand. And the way it worked, you didn't call ahead or you didn't use Travelocity. You didn't, you didn't do any of that stuff. You didn't set up hotel reservations. You showed up and you went to the city square. Usually there's a well or something there and you would hang out around that well. And the way that hospitality worked is people would come Oh, where are you from? Where are you going? Well, come stay with us. So here we have a Levite who is an Israelite in Gibeah, which is an Israelite city. And what happens is they are not offered any hospitality by the people. The people see them. They walk past them. They ignore them. They want nothing to do with them. This screams something's wrong. We have a hard time interpreting Scripture in the way that it was written for those people, for the people of that time. This is, this is unbelievable that they would not be offered hospitality. Something is wrong. And what we're going to see happen, it's proven. So there they stand. Now what happens? A guy from Ephraim's passing through. He happens to live in the city. He sees them there, an old guy. Where are you guys going? What are you doing? Where'd you come from? That's basically like looking at these people sitting like... You don't belong here. I can tell you what. You don't want to be here after dark. You need to come stay with me. And he's basically asking them, why are you here? So we reach this point. The Levite, being a Levite and so holy, makes the statement, I am going to the house of the Lord, and we were passing through. Ah, sounds holy. So the guy looks at him from Ephraim, and he says, you know what? You stay with me. You can stay with me. And the Levite's like, listen, I got everything you need. You don't need to put yourself out. I've got, I've got food. I've got water. I've got bedding for my animals. I've got a concubine. I've got a servant. We'll take care of ourselves. We just need to get out of the streets. The old man answers, you're welcome at my house. You're welcome here. I can tell you this much. Do not spend the night in the square. All right? Not a good place. So he took him into his house, fed his donkeys, put his feet up. They washed their feet. All of this is taking place. And this is, you know, this is the point where we say in the story, relief. This is kind of like when you get lost. I got lost in the woods once. I didn't know where I was at. And I finally hit a creek. And I was like, oh, I know where I'm at. That's the relief that they experienced. They have relief. All right? This is setting us up. Hey, what's so bad about this story? And then there's a huge turn of events. A huge turn of events. What happens next is 
incredibly difficult to work through. While they were at the house, they're all there together. Men from the city, Israelites, Benjamites, surround the house, start pounding on the door, and they start screaming, send the man out, send the visitor out that's with you, send him out to us. And as you see there, the last sentence, bring the man out who came to your house so we can have with him. They want to have a relationship with him. Interesting thing to take note about this. Their desire is not one for a physical pleasure. It is one for total humiliation of a man. This practice that we see taking place is a practice that the Israelites adopted from the Canaanites. Canaanites used this often to humiliate men. You know what? The reason why this guy didn't get any hospitality showed to him when he went into town? Because they didn't want him there. Nobody give him a place to stay. He'll leave. We don't want him here. He'll leave. And he doesn't. Because that guy from Ephraim showed him. He gave him a place to live. We don't want that. Let's go humiliate him. He'll never come back. Let's go send him out. Send him out so that we can humiliate him. We don't want him here. What's next is unspeakable. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Listen, the laws of hospitality are such that you know that he is my guest, and he is a man, and men have many more rights and privileges than any women ever. Here, take my virgin daughter... Take his concubine and do with them whatever you wish. Interesting thing about this wording, whatever you wish. The Hebrew is what's right in your own eyes. This pattern of seeing, do whatever you want to do. Do what's right in your own eyes with them. But for this man, this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And what happens next is so bad that I won't even put the verses on the screen. It's unbelievable what the depravity of man will do when man lives with the belief that I can do whatever I want to do and it's not going to hurt anybody else. When the master wakes up in the morning, he comes out, he opens up the door of his house. Get your mind wrapped around this. They shut the door on her, and they went and had a drinking party, and he went to sleep. As she's being abused throughout the night, and he wakes up in the morning, opens the door, and there she is on the doorstep, dead. But he doesn't know that at first. He walks up to her, and there she lays. Get up. Come on, get up. Let's go. And she doesn't move. So he bends down, and he picks up her dead body, and he throws it over the back of his donkey, and he leaves town. And you know what? He's angry. He's frustrated. He's angry because the laws of hospitality have been violated, 
He's angry because his concubine has been murdered. He almost lost his own life. So he decides that something must be done. He's got to do something about this. This is disgraceful what these people did to me. I can't believe that they would take my, do this to my concubine. So he takes her body. Before he does that, he writes a letter. I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to send it to all the, all the tribes. I'm going to tell them what these guys did. And they're going to pay. But who am I? No one's going to listen to me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut her body up. So he cuts her body into 12 pieces, attaches a letter to it, and sends them to the 12 tribes through the mail. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this. When the mail shows up, the leaders of the community, can you imagine mail day? Here's a package and... Oh, last two weeks ago, I threw away three pork shoulders in the trash can, and it smelled so bad. I couldn't imagine a human body being delivered across an arid country, rotting with a letter. And the people see this, and they say, such a thing has never happened. It's a nice way of saying, we've never sunk this low before. Somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to speak up. And guess what? That's where the chapter ends. We are left with no hero. We are left with no closure on this story. And we sit here and we say to ourselves, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. So the people followed their own moral compass. How familiar does that sound? When we have no absolute authority in our life and we think we can do whatever we want, it has drastic, drastic consequences. It's like this. Every character along the way did exactly what they thought was right for the day. When you stand back and look at the decisions, however, you see absolute chaos. The men in Gibeah, we don't like strangers. This is our town. We have a right to decide who stays here and who doesn't. Send that guy out, and we'll teach him a lesson. We have the right to do that. The Levite, when they're pounding on the door, the Levite looks at his concubine, and he says, you know what, honey? If you hadn't run off to begin with, I wouldn't be in this situation. You know, if, if you hadn't gotten me drunk at your dad's house partying all night, we could have left at a normal hour and this wouldn't have been a problem. I hate to do this. I hate to do this. But here, take my concubine. She's only a woman. She's my property. Do with her what you want. And then he's going to chop her body up and send it around town? At every point along the way, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here's the reality. When I do what I want, someone always gets hurt. Judges is not far removed from the way that we live our lives. We aren't sending concubines out into the street. We aren't chopping bodies up. But we don't live our lives like there's a king on our throne that rules them. We do what we want to do. I know what's best for me. You have no right to tell me what to do. 
But here is the problem. When I do whatever I want, someone always gets hurt. So here's the problems with the thinking. Have you ever been, seen a fifth grade teacher? Class, you're dismissed. Oh, before you go, please remember, students, the key to happiness. Do what you want, when you want, dismissed, see you Monday. You've never seen a teacher do that. Or how about a social worker with people who are losing their kids? Hey, you know what? Sorry we had to take your kids away from you, but here's the deal. You want to get your kids back? Here's the secret. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, and you can have your kids back. It doesn't work. It doesn't add up. But this is the consequences of the decision when we live our lives this way. There's also an impact on women. When I do whatever I want, someone always gets hurt. The impact for a man to live this way is totally different than the impact for a woman to live this way. It generally works out better for men than it does women. In a world where you do what you want, women generally become possessions and profit centers every single time. When I do what I want as a man, I am going to impact women. I don't know how you separate the two. Every, everywhere that women have rights in this world, they had to fight for them. Because when men do whatever they want, women always suffer. Husbands, when you live your life sexually however you want, your wife will suffer. The time that I spend on screen is my time. It doesn't impact anyone else. Your wife will always suffer. In order to live our lives this way, we have to set ourselves up as many kings. I have to become the king of my own life. You have to rule your own life. You have to push God out. He becomes nothing more than a feeling, not a king. Here's the reality. When I do whatever I want, you hurt you because you're someone. Do you realize that? To say that I want to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt someone, you are a someone. And ultimately, you're going to be mastered by something. Doing whatever you want will have consequences on your life. Think of it this way. The thing that I want, that I wanted so bad, eventually will master you. I want possessions, I get mastered by debt. I want relationships, I compromise my morality. I want healing, I find comfort in alcohol. I chase adrenaline, I turn to drugs. I want intimacy, I turn towards pornography. Here's the interesting thing about this thinking. The thing that has mastered you in your life started as an expression of your freedom. It started with this idea that I'm going to do what I want to do because you think you rule your life, but you don't. The next thing that we see is when I do what I want, you hurt the people around you. This is why parents freak out when their kids go out with another group and they don't like the group. It's not that they're worried about you getting hurt because of what you do. It's because I don't trust them. We just can't get our minds wrapped around this. If you're a teenager, you can't hurt you without hurting someone else. You hurt your parents. You hurt your grandparents. You hurt your brother. You hurt your sister. If you're a husband, you can't hurt you without hurting your wife. My private addiction is my private addiction. I won't hurt anyone. It destroys intimacy in your relationship. Hurts the girl on the screen by exploiting her, and it hurts the girl's father by abusing her. 
Think about it. If you're a parent, you can't hurt you without hurting your kids. They're watching you. They see your addiction. They don't know how to express what they see. They need you to be fully present and positive to make an impact. You can't do what you want to do without it hurting somebody. You can't do what you want to do. You hurt the people that are coming after you. Here's the reality about some of us in this room. Some of us are dysfunctional, okay? I won't point any fingers, but some of us live with a high level of dysfunctionality, and we don't know why. Um, you know, you're kind of odd, but here's the reality. Once you pass 30, you start to realize, I might do some things in my life because of the way that my parents did things in their life. Because they operated their life doing whatever they wanted to do, saying that it wasn't going to hurt anybody, but it hurt me. And today, I'm 45 years old or 43 years old or 42 years old, or, and what they did is impacting your life today. And you don't know what to do about it. You recognize that some things are off because of what your parents did. They did whatever they, they wanted, but they forgot to factor you in. When I do what I want, someone always gets hurt. Someone always gets hurt. So what's the solution to our problem? What's the solution to this thinking? I need to recognize that I don't possess the solution necessary. Isn't this odd? The solution to our problem is having a king, right? But the solution to our problem is to step off the own our own throne of our lives and let God step in there and let Jesus have lordship over us. The pattern that we see in judges of disobedience, disaster, deliverance is present in our own lives too. And here's what's interesting when we think about judges. What we see from judges is that the God who was disobeyed, the God who was set aside, the God that was ignored, the God that was mocked, steps in to rescue his people. So that same God steps in and rescues them. I find that pretty amazing. Number two, you've got to, I just went to three. Number two, trust godly influences to point you in the right direction. Some of you have influences in your life that are not pointing you the right way. You need to get rid of them. You can, you're going to be like the four people you spend the most time with. If you've got people whose lives are a wreck, why do you put those people around yourself? If you're a wreck, find people that are mature. Find people who are pointing you towards Christ and let them get involved in your life. Let them have an influence in the way that you're going to live your life and let them point you towards a relationship with God. And bottom line you have to submit to God and his perfect solution. God provides a solution. This requires submission, and this is not easy because I want to rule my own life. That 10-letter word submission is often so very offensive to so many people. God is willing to step into your life. I'm going to have the band come forward here, but God is willing to step into your life. He's willing for you to relinquish control of your life and he wants to have an impact in your life. But in order to do this, in order for this to happen, you have to give some things up. You have to take and give your life over to him. You have to recognize that the way that you want to live your life, if I want to do what I want to do, it isn't going to work. God provided the perfect solution to this problem in his son, Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting one for you. I thought about this. If Jesus were present with the men came pounding on the door, do you know what his response would be? 
Jesus would have stepped into the doorway. He would have stepped out into the street. He would have taken the punishment. He would have taken the abuse. Oh, he did that already for me. That's what Jesus did for you. And you've got to recognize that that has happened and that it provides you unbelievable freedom. As the band comes, I want you to think about this thought. No matter how high a mountain you might be on, no matter how deep a valley you might be in, God is there. God has a solution for your problem. But in order for you to receive that solution, you have to step away from your throne and you have to let him have control of your life. Amen.